Support for this IPR podcast comes from Iowa Community Foundations, an initiative of the Iowa Council of Foundations, connecting donors to causes they care about. Details on the Endow Iowa Tax Credit Program at communityfoundations.org. Today, I am at the Grout Museum of History and Science in Waterloo. The Grout has been serving the community since 1956. It is a popular field trip destination for area schools and a great place to watch the stars in Northeast Iowa's only public planetarium. The museum specializes in local history, but in 2020, it became clear that an important segment of the population of Waterloo was not well represented in the museum's collections or in its oral history. The museum's Voices of Iowa oral history collection contained very few black voices, and that's particularly significant in a community where more than 20% of the residents are people of color, and the black community has a long, rich history. In response, the Grout Museum created the Black Stories Collective Project, a permanent exhibit that opened in 2022 and is still growing. With me today is Latanya Graves, president of the Waterloo chapter of the NAACP and co-chair of the Black Stories Collective Committee. Hello, Latanya. Good morning. It is wonderful to have you here. And also with us is Jenny Bowser. She is a Grout Museum exhibit curator. Hello, Jenny. Hi. And Jenny, I I want to start with that realization in 2020 at the museum. Can you tell me about the conversations that were taking place after the murder of George Floyd that made you realize you needed to do something different? Right. Yeah. Um, So we kind of looked through what we had and we realized that we were really deficient in our collection of um, items, especially since, you know, African-Americans are such a huge part of our community and they're just not well represented. So we decided that we would get together and form a committee and make this permanent exhibit with topics that would change so that we were covering all kinds of different histories that involve African-Americans in the Cedar Valley. Can you tell me more about those conversations? I mean, a lot of people were having very serious conversations that summer as um, there was really uh, this huge growth in the Black Lives Matter movement and, of course, just the repercussions of that murder. Can you tell me more about what you were talking about with other employees at the Grout? I think a lot of what we were talking about was um, just kind of our disappointment with ourselves and how we didn't have, uh, we weren't really serving the community as well as we should. But I can imagine there was a moment where you thought, wow, I can't believe I didn't see this before. Was did was there kind of an epiphany? Yeah, I think more of my epiphanies came from when I was doing research, really. But yeah, the, I went to East High and I had no idea about the um, events that took place there with the, the protests. So I think that was just a huge disservice as well to students who don't know about that. Um, well, and you'll fill us in on, on that yeah, story yeah, yeah. in a few minutes. But so, so you and others at the Grout had this realization: okay, we need to do better. But you also, at the same time, had the realization that you needed to make sure that, as you went about this process, that Black Iowans were included in creating this process. Right? Yes, absolutely. Because you know. Um, I mean, this is radio, but I'm white, and my perspective is not going to be the same 
or necessarily as accurate as someone who is a person of color. So we really needed to make sure that we had those voices that were, you know, giving input and saying, you know, this, we should focus on this or you need to elaborate on that, you know, things like that. So LaTanya, that's when you heard from the Grout Museum. Can you tell me, do you remember that first communication about this project? I just remember it being a number of emails um, with various people uh, in the email chain, and they were discussing um, including African-American history, which we thought was very important. And so, because if you if you think about it, um, if history is lost, you know, it's forgotten. And if it's never told, it's never repeated. And so um, when they, you know, were discussing how it could be inclusive of the African-American history here in Black Hawk County, we were so excited about it. And so the committee was formed and then, um, you know, they were going back and forth on who should be the chair. And so myself and Tavis Hall, we were like, we'll just co-chair, you know, because we're so involved in so many other things. And so, um, and that's how I became a part of it. So tell me about some of the, the planning that you and other members of the committee did as you came together to, to look at the history of this part of the state and specifically of Waterloo and the rich black history here. How did you start this process of collecting stories? Well, um, as the committee was formed, uh, various members of the committee had extensive knowledge of, of the history um, here when it came to African-Americans. And so we reached out to those individuals and gathered information. And even still today, you know, we're still uh, sending emails with information on um, black businesses that uh, began here. And um, I remember just doing a little research and um, my dad actually, he had a club here and I was so amazed and he even still has the um, articles of incorporation and the board members and all of that and so and I remember when I first saw it um, and I was reading everything over if his club had still been in existence um, they had the foresight to, to say 50 years you know which would have been I think like 2013 or 14. You know, and I was like, wow, you know, and so, um, but again, I never knew anything about it, you know, but being a child, I would not have. Right, so. right. Well, but, did, um, uh, as you started hearing stories like that, did you start to feel a real sense of urgency that we needed to record this history before it's lost? Because, of course, uh, a lot of these stories date back to the civil rights movement, which is 60 years ago yes. now. Was there was there a little fear like, oh, we've got to get this done now? Yes, because if you think about it, a lot of our elderly are in their 80s and, and beyond because he's like 91, you know, and so it's important to get the information now while they're able to share it. And, um, or even, you know, I guess we could talk to family members as well, but hearing it from the individual, um, that that's a jewel. Yeah. And I, I'm sure you can learn things that you wouldn't think to ask 
exactly, <laughs> when you actually exactly. get to talk to people about their own personal yes. history. I do want to ask you, you said you were really excited about this opportunity. Obviously, you have a great relationship with the Grout Museum. When when you thought about initially the fact that the Grout Museum, which does focus on local history, had so few black voices included in their collections, so few of these stories were told, how did that make you feel? You know, it kind of, when you think about it, it's like you never thought about it. You know, you never realized that there was no history that included African-Americans. And so it's amazing that after the riots and everything that took place, you know, it was kind of pushed to the forefront. And in all actuality, it should have taken place long ago because there are so many um pioneers here, like, you know, the Anna Mae Weems and the Willie Mae Wrights and and the Dorothy Turners and the Dorothy Salases and, and the Roosevelt Taylors. And so it kind of makes you wonder why their stories weren't told, you know, a long time ago. Yeah. I grew up in Cedar Falls, Iowa. And as you know, Cedar Falls and Waterloo literally touch part of the same metropolitan area. And, you know, when I learned about the civil rights movement when I was in school, it all felt like something that happened far away. And yet it also happened right here. And those stories just weren't part of what I was being taught. And what I hear you saying is that students in Waterloo also felt the same way. Yes, yes. And I remember um, when I was in elementary and I couldn't wait to get to East High and so, um, and then the year, I, I think it was my sophomore year, and I remember before I got to East High, they had a black student union. And then the year that um, I made it to East High, they changed it to People United. And it kind of made me feel, you know, a certain way, like, why did they change it to People United? And it was, you know, black people, you know, mm-hmm. and so, um, Things just started changing, and um, and I remember one time getting in trouble, and you know, and I I walked out of gym class, but anyways, uh, and and I went to the principal's office. I was called to the principal, summoned to the principal's office, and so um, and it was Dr. Walter Cunningham, and he asked me uh, why did I lead a walkout, and I was looking at him like I didn't lead a walkout unbeknownst to me, everybody else in the gym class walked out behind me, but I didn't know that. So I think that started my activism. Yeah, I was going to say, you're part of this history, even if it was unintentional. Yes, yes. So. Uh, well, in uh, we're going to walk through the exhibit here in just a moment. But Latanya, did you find in in learning about the things that were put into this exhibit and, you know, Jenny helped to create the exhibit. Did you find that there were stories that you didn't know about? Were you learning about Black history in Waterloo through this process? Yes. And even um, after uh, it was completed and we did a tour, um, you know, just reading the different stories, it was so amazing. And like I shared earlier, I attended the 50th anniversary of the um, UNI 7 and just um, looking at it again, you know, and I thought about it and I was like, 
wow, I was a little girl, you know, and so I didn't know anything about it until um, they actually had the 50th anniversary. And so, again, those stories are so important. And if um, they're not told, they're not repeated. We are going to take a short break. We are at the Grout Museum of History and Science in Waterloo, Iowa, and we are here to visit the Black Stories Collective Project. It's a permanent exhibit that opened in 2022. With me is Jenny Bowser, Grout Exhibit Curator, and LaTanya Graves, President of the Waterloo Chapter of the NAACP and Co-Chair of the Black Stories Collective Committee. And we're gonna go check out the exhibit. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News. Support for IPR comes from Corridor Vein Center and Corridor Aesthetics, treatment for varicose veins and spider veins, also providing facial rejuvenation services and treatment for moderate to severe acne. More at Corridor Vein and CorridorAesthetics.com. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. I am at the Grout Museum of History and Science in Waterloo. And the Grout Museum focuses on local history, but in 2020, as social justice protests were being held all over the country, the people who work at the Grout Museum sat down and looked hard at their collection and realized that black voices and black stories were not well represented in their collection, and they decided to do something about it. What they did was call in a number of members of the community to help them put together what is now called the Black Stories Collective Exhibition, and it is a permanent exhibit at the Grout Museum that opened in 2022. With me today is Latanya Graves, president of the Waterloo chapter of the NAACP and co-chair of the Black Stories Collective Committee. Also, Jenny Bowser is here, who is an exhibit curator at the Grout Museum and helped to create this exhibit. And we are standing now at the beginning of this exhibit. On one wall, there is an amazing mural, and we're going to talk about that later with the artist who created the mural. But we're going to start here at the beginning of the exhibit. So if, if you guys were going to take me through, this exhibit. Um, Jenny, I'll let you start. Where do we begin this story? So we we decided to start um, with sort of an overview of the state of Iowa and the um, civil rights events that happened. And we started in 1839 uh, with the case of Ralph, which determined that no one could be enslaved in the state of Iowa. Um, and we stopped in 1949 um, with the events that happened in Des Moines at Cat's Drugstore. All right, so we're starting big picture with the state of Iowa. And LaTanya, there are a couple things on this this timeline that I've always been really proud of in Iowa. The fact that um, we were never a slave state and that um, there were a number of very progressive things that happened in Iowa moving toward equality. I think that's a history that a lot of us have celebrated without thinking too deeply about 
other elements <laughs> of our history in Iowa. We like to pat ourselves on our on the back for for being progressive. What do you think we need to think about when we think about sort of the longer history of Black Iowans? Inclusivity, because without it, you know, history perishes. So when we start to involve or, and include everyone's history, um, then we're able to understand, you know, cultural norms and values and why some people do the things they do. And a lot of times, you know, when we don't understand, um, that's when we fall into uh, discrimination. Jenny, is there anything you'd like to add to that? Uh, yeah, uh, we talk about the progressiveness of Iowa, but at the same time, um, in my research and, you know, listening to interviews and going through transcripts, one thing that really struck me is, that, yeah, we were never a slave state, um, but that doesn't mean that we weren't kind of, you know, racist or segregated because a lot of folks would talk about how they came here and there was almost kind of a, a backhanded sort of racism to what they would encounter. You know, one individual said, you know, he came from Mississippi. And in Mississippi, you knew exactly where you stood. You knew exactly um, what what was and wasn't allowed. But when he got here, it was very confusing for him because you never knew what you were going to get from someone. You never knew what you were going to get from a business um, or the schools. Wow. All right, let's keep moving down here. The Grout Museum is actually closed today, but not to museum school. There are a whole bunch of kids from Kittrell Elementary School who are attending museum school this week. So we, uh, we get lines of kids coming through as we're exploring the exhibit, which is wonderful to see. And... Jenny, I'll ask you, uh, we we start this exhibit, um, we, we talked a little bit about the beginning, but then uh, there's a sign here that tells us about Rath Packing House Local Union 46. This is not a part of, of history that I've ever heard of. Tell me why this is an important story. So Rath Packing, just like a lot of places, um, there were segregated areas where usually the more dangerous and difficult positions were given to people who were African-American and, you know, higher jobs were given to whites. Um, and so local union 46 at Rath Packing, they worked together and um, kind of desegregated each um, area in the plant and worked to um, make it more equal for for people working there. And they also realized, though, with their power, um, if they weren't working in their community to also desegregate and, you know, move things forward, it wasn't really helping their members as much as they would like. So they moved out into the community and started uh, their activism out Exciting. there, too. So this was, this was a big galvanizing moment for a lot of activists in Waterloo. And a name that I see, of course, on this list is Anna Mae Weems. And Latanya, for people in Iowa who don't know about Anna Mae Weems, can you tell me a little bit about her? Anna Mae Weems is a firehouse. I mean, she's a fire starter. She's a fire putter outer. I mean, there are so many ways to describe Anna Mae Weems. I mean, when you hear her name, things happen. And so, um, you know, and I remember being um, a 
in elementary school and she would have meetings at her house because we lived on the same street just a couple blocks away from each other and so she would have meetings at her house and um, it would be so many people over there but she was fighting to ensure that uh, people were treated equal and um, you know even when there was a time when, you know, we weren't getting jobs and she ensured that uh, we, you know, were placed in positions that we were qualified for just as anyone else. And so Anna, she's still a firehouse. She's, I mean, you know, if you talk to her today, she can, she can remember things that I can't remember that happened, you know? And so um, and, just and a this, great resource. The Raft Packing House Local Union. I mean, she was involved in that. And this was 1953. And we're going to see her name associated with a lot of things that happened in Waterloo. And the very next thing is that that she, along with other members of the civil rights movement locally, managed to bring Martin Luther King Jr. to the Cedar Valley, uh, which, again, an event I think a lot of people probably never knew existed. What's so important about this moment in history? LaTanya? The fact that Anna Mae um, brought, and others, brought Dr. King to Waterloo, Iowa. You know, that in itself is is something to be proud about because yeah. we hear so many negative things, you know, um, about Waterloo, but there are so many positive things that go on, and that was a positive. Tell me more about that thought. You hear so many negative things about Waterloo. Tell me what you mean when you say that. Well, there was a report that came out in um, November of 2018 that said uh, Waterloo, specifically Blackhawk County, ranked number one in the nation um, in, you know, basically discriminating against right. African-Americans. It's the, it's the worst, it's the worst place yeah, to be an African-American you know, in the country. And it's like, said, yeah. you know, when you think about that, it's like, wow, because when you see something in print, you believe it. Mm -hmm. But when you just hear about it and it's like, oh, it's not that bad. You know, people, people are getting along, people are getting hired. But when you actually see it in print and, you know, in the nation, it's an eye opener. And then things start to change, which is important because if, if um, things aren't brought to the forefront, then everything is just going to be what they want to call smooth selling, but it's really not. Yeah. So, so in, in thinking about these moments in history, and, and again, I told you earlier that, you know, when I learned about the civil rights movement, I felt like it was something that happened far away. I had no idea Dr. King came to Waterloo, Iowa. That, that brings it home in, in a really powerful way. But of course, the civil rights movement was happening here. And I want to move down the wall and talk about some of the uh, other really powerful things that were happening in the 1960s in Waterloo. And Jenny, you've put together this, this whole wall that, that tells us about protests, student protests, and changes in Waterloo. Give me kind of a summary of, of what this is about. So uh, in 1966, uh, there was an individual who was in police custody uh, named Eddie Salas, and he um, passed away in their custody. Um, it was portrayed that he 
committed suicide, but there's there's some questions about that. And that kind of led to some protesting and some, you know, um, marches and demands made on of, you know, City Hall, the mayor, the the police uh, station. They wanted black officers. Uh, they wanted, you know, kind of a full investigation into Eddie Salas's death. They the, There was just, you know, things that you would think wouldn't be that big of a deal. But, you know, back in the 60s, it was a huge deal You know, to think that we didn't have any African-American police officers. Yeah. Let's talk about student movements. And um, this is a sign about student protests at East High School, where basically at the time in the 1960s, that was the black high school. Um, Latanya, do you want to talk about the segregation of schools in, in Waterloo, which was not the law, but it was very real in practice? You know, I just remember um, when I was in junior high, you know, um, I lived in a, to me, it was a diverse neighborhood. And, um, but I remember when I got to high school, um, they set these boundaries in place. And it probably happened before I got to high school. But I remember um, living on Mobile Street, and I was in East High District. And then there was a house in the middle, and then the house um, on the other side, um, my friend, she was in West High's district. And it was like, how do you go through neighborhoods and break up, you know, friendships by separating us because of these boundaries that were put in place? And what we found out is um, white students weren't being bused to our neighborhood schools, but we were being bused out of our neighborhood to white schools. And so it was like, you know, every other block, um, one of my friends was in West High's district, and then the other friends were in East High's district. And it, and it you know, you just didn't understand what was going on, and um, it separated us. Well, and this is, uh Uh, people who have read the 1619 Project, who have viewed the 1619 Project, who've listened to Nicole Hannah-Jones speak, know that she grew up in Waterloo. She grew up in Waterloo the same time I was growing up in Cedar Falls, and she was a kid who was bused to the white schools. She went to to West High. She was part of this desegregation effort that that you're saying was slow and (laughs) incomplete. And um, so we're learning about this, this long process that led to the desegregation of Waterloo schools eventually. Um, I want to jump ahead a little bit to the UNI-7. And Latanya, you mentioned earlier the UNI-7, this being a story that you, although you were growing up in, in Waterloo at the time that this happened, it was something you didn't know about. Can you tell me what you've learned, what happened? I just remember, like I said, going to the 50th anniversary of the sit-in at the president's home. And so um, the students were demanding changes at UNI. And so, um, you know, they led a protest and sat in until some changes were made. And again, as a youngster, you know, I didn't know about it. And and. At that time, you know, our parents kind of kept us sheltered from 
different things that um, I would say were um, um, controversial. Yes, or maybe yes, painful. yes, yes. And so, you know, again, but learning this is 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 just amazing because I know several of the uh, people that were included in the UNI-7. Oh, really? Yes. So th- and these were the students who, in March of 1970, entered the, the home of President Mocker. Of course, we all know Mocker Union at the University of Northern Iowa, and they refused to leave until he had at least heard their, <laughs> their demands. Let's walk around the corner and talk about what we see. This, uh, this brings me to 2020. I, I think because we're, we're seeing a lot of um, Black Lives Matter signs, a lot of photographs from protests. Uh, Jenny, are these all pro- photographs that were taken in Waterloo? Yes, they are all. Um, they were done by um, Nia Wilder. She took a lot of these photos. Um, Latanya, when you see this collection of items, some of these are, are artifacts from um, some aid that was given to protesters, I'm guessing. We see protest signs, we see buttons, we see t-shirts, we see hoodies, we see face masks, and we see all of these photographs learning about Black Lives Matter, which, uh, you know, in a few years, this will be something that, that may be new to a lot of the students and, and people who come through the museum if, if that's not a name that endures. Um, what do you see when you look at, at this wall? I see change I see respect I see um, people from all walks of life coming together to say that black lives truly do matter I see pain I see confusion and then I also see love I can imagine for the students who visit the museum today that seeing this wall is empowering because this is history that they remember. This is uh, something that, that comes from their lives, their lifetimes, that is in a museum. And we all knew that summer that history was being made, but for young people to see this history enshrined in a museum, that feels really powerful. Latanya, what do you think about that? Yes, it does. Because when young people can see pictures that reflect them, you know, it gives them a better understanding of what they can become, you know. And so many times uh, we put so little faith in little people and um, they are extraordinary individuals. Well, Jenny Bowser, thank you so much. Thank you. And Latanya Graves, thank you so much. Thank you. I've been talking with Latanya Graves, president of the Waterloo chapter of the NAACP and co-chair of the Black Stories Collective Committee, and Jenny Bowser, who is an exhibit curator at the Grout Museum. In just a moment, we are going to take an in-depth look at a beautiful mural that is part of this exhibit as well. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. 
Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Today I'm at the Grout Museum of History and Science in Waterloo, and I've been touring the Black Stories Collective Project. It's a permanent exhibit that opened in 2022, and it tells the stories of black Iowans, and it culminates with the Black Lives Matter movement that grew so powerfully after the murder of George Floyd. And when you enter this exhibit, the very first thing that you see is a beautiful, colorful, mural that covers an entire wall of the exhibit. This mural was painted by Chaviva Bank Ferguson, a Waterloo-based artist and author. You've met her before because she's also co-host of the North End Update, a weekly Facebook live show that celebrates the good news of Waterloo, and we have talked about that in the past, but Chaviva, thank you so much for meeting us here today. Oh, well, thank you for, for wanting to talk to me. Have you ever done a mural this big before? No. All right, so this, this was, is this the was new. One. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's yeah. it's really stunning. Will you walk us down the wall and tell us what we're seeing pictures of starting here? It says Illinois okay. Central. Yep. Now, um, everybody or quite a few people have heard of the Great Migration, but as it concerns Waterloo, Iowa, um, the Illinois Central brought a lot of people up here with the uh, promise of employment. So a lot of people came from the south and resettled here. And this was uh, the railroad. Yes. And I don't think that a lot of them knew that they were coming to be strike breakers. They knew they were coming for a better opportunity than that they had in the south. And um, <clears throat> that was an original draw. And so this is sort of a depiction of um, people just gathered. This is from a, a photograph of people by a church. And it was just um, a big deal to be here, to be up north, and to but have tell a me more about so they were brought in to be strike breakers. So mm -hmm. that must have made life a little bit more difficult for them when they came to take these jobs. Oh, it was out of the frying pan into the fire because not only did they not realize, from what I've read, that they came here to be strike breakers, they also um, had no place to live. Mm -hmm. So originally people were living in uh, boxcars. Wow. You know, the railroad brought them here, it stopped there, and then I think people were even like rotating sleep schedules as far as uh, living in uh, these boxcars. People were getting sick, um, getting pneumonia, tuberculosis, just different things. It was a lot of hardship involved, but still apparently the, it was a preferable situation to come up north and try to, right. you know, even though life different. Was, yeah. was so hard. Yeah. All right, now we see soldiers, black soldiers. Tell me about this. Yes, um, in Waterloo, in Iowa, just as any number of other places in the United States, the military was seen as a way to improve your situation. To, to show your patriotism and also to um, have an opportunity again to advance yourself to uh, support your family um, so there are some of the people that are depicted the soldiers that are depicted <clears throat> excuse me are soldiers not specifically connected this young man 
was part of an outfit, I think, that first originally desegregated the, I don't know if it was the Army or the Marines, but yes. So um, I think that's why I made it such a big part of the mural is because there was such a big um, level of, of participation. Right, because it was such such an opportunity. Yes. And I, I'm going to refer again to the 1619 Project because, of course, Nicole Hannah-Jones grew up here in Waterloo. Her father had been a soldier and was very proud of his service and proudly flew the American flag in front of their house at all times. And she writes a lot about the fact that, that so many young black men in particular found opportunity through serving their country and then were not treated like full Americans even though they had served their country. Absolutely, and there were things that were not um, open to black soldiers in the same way as as, as white veterans like the uh, GI Bill, right. those sorts of things in order to get a home. Um, my father and both my brothers, they served, and other cousins, different people in my family served, and didn't reap those kind of benefits. But that feeling of uh, America being the home of the free, land of the brave sort of thing, uh, really took that to heart and really, um, you know, volunteered to serve. Put their lives on the line. Yes. I see Martin Luther King Jr. with Anna Mae Weems. We, We talked about that history when she and others organized to help bring him to Waterloo. Tell me about KBBG. Okay, KBBG um, is, continues to be a black-owned and operated radio station here in Waterloo. And that was sort of a surprise for me coming from Chicago because a lot of the radio stations, uh, urban radio stations, are not necessarily black-owned. They're just, um, you know, their on-air personalities and stuff like that are, are black, but... That, this was just new for me. Yeah, so a unique uh, yeah. black-owned radio station in Waterloo. Right. I see black farmers, which is something a lot of people don't think exists. Right. But <laughs> Myself included. That was one of the things I wanted to make sure that I included because ah, coming from the city, I mean, my relationship with, uh, you know, produce was going to the grocery right, store. Right, right. So I didn't realize that, that there were as many um, black farmers as there are. And our black farmer, one of our black farmers here is driving a John Deere tractor, which is, that is what you drive if you live in Waterloo, Iowa, Mm -hmm. and drive a tractor. Um, But of course, black Iowans were an important part and are an important part of John Deere as well. Yes, definitely. Uh, I found that out when I moved here too. (laughs) So now I see all these beautiful girls wearing beautiful dresses. What's this about? This is the cotillion, something that happens uh, every year. It's sort of an introduction to society where young girls is put on by the Club La Dames and seniors in high school um, are basically, like I said, presented to society. It's an occasion to dress up and be beautiful and be recognized. And um, it was a a sort of a, a revelation for me because in Chicago, I associated things like cotillions with uh, higher class, you know, I mean, as far as people with the money. Crust. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, I come from a working class family, so that was not something that 
ever crossed my mind. I didn't know anyone who was involved in one or anything like that. But to come here and see it being accessible to um, basically all the young girls in the community, you know, as far as being a senior in high school and um, it's an opportunity to be recognized and talk about your future plans, all that kind of stuff. So. so I see athletes. You want to tell me who they are? Yes, number 32 is Jerry Moses. And he was, um, he was a, a football star. Uh, I think back in the 70s. Yeah, late right. 60s, 70s. And he went to Iowa State. Um, as did the wrestler that's also depicted up there, Kyvin Gadsden. You know, people that were really standouts. Again, someone from Iowa State. I see Nicole Hannah-Jones. I recognize her, obviously. Pulitzer Prize winner, create, creator of the 1619 Project. Proud West High grad. Yes. <laughs> yes, and um, I definitely, she had to be included and... Um, Sometimes, you know, when you meet someone after the fact, as I did, they just seem sort of larger than life until you actually meet them. And they're just, she's, it's as likely for her to be from Waterloo as any place else, I guess. You know, but um, yeah, her experience with um, being bust mm -hmm. is a thing that she said, opened her eyes to see, wow, you know, so that bus ride that she took every day, she saw how different things were right. from her community and the community that she was being bused to. And so that, you know, probably opened up a lot of, for some people, unintended observations that she made. Well, so. you know, I often think about, there are a lot of Iowans who are so proud that Nicole Hannah-Jones is from the state of Iowa. There has also been legislation put forward to try to ban the teaching of the 1619 Project. Yeah. And it, it's just, it's a, we're at an interesting moment in our history, Chaviva, where we love to celebrate Iowans who do well. And Nicole Hannah-Jones is only celebrated by a segment of our population. Right. Yes. It's for, um, yeah, you do well, but... Don't tell too much truth or whatever, however you want to put that. Yes. And is this? This is Miss Willie Mae Wright. Okay. And I, I put her down here, and I guess symbolically, these are some of the shoulders on which people like Nicole Hannah-Jones stands. Um, she was, has been, and continues to be one of those people that's um, like Anna Mae Weems, uh, a force of nature, and gets things done and asks questions and pushes back against, well, okay, if not, why not? And, yeah, she's very instrumental in civil rights here in Waterloo. And we're almost to the end of your mural, and we're not going to have time to talk about every single face, but mm -hmm. I love this part of the mural so much because we have images that are very clearly from the Black Lives Matter movement of 2020 and we have images of protesters engaged in the civil rights movement of the 1960s juxtaposed against each other. Tell me why you made that choice. Um, I made that choice because well first of all it was sort of 
I can't say it was a surprise, but I can say I was not here to experience. I was in Chicago to experience the the protests of the 60s, but the things that were being protested against were nationwide, much like the Black Lives Matter. And this was a precedent, a foundation on which so, so one sort of supports the other. And yeah, it was good to me to see that there were uh, instances of people mobilizing and protesting even back then. So, Geneva, yeah. this is so beautiful. Thank you. And such an important part of, of this overall exhibit. When you visit the exhibit, tell me, tell me how it makes you feel. <sighs> it's, um, it's, I don't know, it's surreal a little bit because when I was here working on it, it was just my job. I just came in every day and... Uh, <laughs> got sloppy and and <laughs> stuff like that and then um every day for weeks maybe uh, two and a half months or so over the summer and then one day I was just finished and I sort of I don't sort of couldn't believe it but um I I feel good about it and now of course like with anything I can think of people now that I've heard about that I was not aware of or, you know. You want to get back in and add in more Yeah, faces. sort of, yep. yeah. yeah. Um, we've heard throughout our conversation, we've heard young people moving around. The museum school is in session mm-hmm. today. When you think about kids, and I mean, this is a field trip destination for every school, I think, in the Cedar Valley. Mm-hmm. <laughs> when you think about kids coming to the museum, and walking along this wall and looking at your work, what do you want them to take away from this experience? I, I want them to understand that these things and so much more have happened and are happening right now, and they're, they're, they're a part of it. They're relatives, friends, neighbors, or whatever are a part of it. Um, one of the things that I really used to love when I was working on it is sometimes the kids would come down this corridor and they would stop and they would, oh, my, you, she did this, oh, you're doing this. And I thought that was really cool because, first of all, I was representing for, for African Americans. I was representing for women. You know, some people, oh, you know, it's a big deal because a woman did this. And even further, <laughs> I'm, I'm no spring chicken. So that there was that aspect, too. And it just felt I, I loved having the opportunity to do this. So You uh, spent a lot of time spreading good news about Waterloo, Iowa. And, and I was talking earlier with LaTanya about, you know, seeing seeing this history when a lot of the things that people have historically said about Waterloo are not positive and with your north end update every friday with your friend rocky mm-hmm. you, you you guys do so much work to to raise to amplify the voices of the people of waterloo to tell positive stories and to build community does this feel like furthering that work but in a in a very concrete and colorful way um 
I like the way you put that. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it does sort of feel that way because it's something that people can come by and and look and in some instances in a very real, real way see somebody that they know like um someone that they're related to like they're, for the musicians um Kevin Bird most people know who he is um there are people who are related to this man that I have um that Louis McTizick a blues legend here in Waterloo um there's the mayor of Waterloo. There's the first African-American police chief. You know, so there's just... Right. Takes us right up to the present moment. And I can imagine that that makes, makes people feel really proud that they're, they're part of this history. You should be proud that you're part of this history too, Chaviva. Thank you so much. It really is beautiful. Thank you, Charity. Yeah, it was... Thank you. Thank you. Chaviva Bank Ferguson is a Waterloo-based artist and author. We've been talking about the mural she created for the Black Stories Collective Project at the Grout Museum in Waterloo, Iowa. The Black Stories Collective Project is a permanent exhibit at the museum that continues to grow. Talk of Iowa is a production of IPR News. This episode was produced by Danny Gear. I'm Charity Nebbe. This is Talk of Iowa. Mm-hmm.